Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. Every week we'll be celebrating the spirit of Manchester by speaking to someone who's helped shape the city. This week I'm joined by a Mancunian historian and genealogist, Michaela Hume. Michaela talks about how she got into history after not enjoying the subject at school. So for me, I needed that personal connection and doing my family tree gave me that. And she'll give us some insights into the history of Manchester, as well as reminding us how it's evolved into the city it is today. In the 19th century, we were right at the forefront of what I would call progress. We get known as just relying on cotton, but it was a, it was a, a real mixture. But outside of London, we were, I'd argue, the city. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester a lady who was... Uh, She's probably more clued up about the real history of Manchester than any of us. She is an historian. She's a genealogist as well. And it's Michaela Hume. Welcome. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm great. You're looking very radiant. Thank you. I thank you very much for inviting me in. 
We've, no, listen, nice. we've been excited. We're excited about all of them, but this is. A, I guess that by the end of this one, I'm going to have learned a lot more about this beautiful city of Manchester. Because you are a professional genealogist and social historian. You're based at Manchester Metropolitan University. Before we talk about your career, Michaela, let's talk about where it all started. Where and when were you born? So I was born in Stockport in 1981. Well, I say Stockport. I was I was born at Stepping Hill Hospital, but when we were younger, we lived in Gatley. And then from there, my mum and dad worked really, really hard and then got us a little house in, in Bramall, on an estate in Bramall. And so I went to Bramall High School. So I went to primary school in Gatley and then moved to to Bramall and then went to Bramall High. What did your mum and dad do? My dad's now retired and my mum sells property and she's always sold property. So she's um, one of those feisty sales ladies, that's what I'd call her. You've got a few of them in here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's definitely one of them. So she's, I remember like when we were kids, I mean, say we'd go to, I don't know, McDonald's or somewhere like that. My mum would say we had like, you know, three quarters of a packet of chips. This is my mum and dad. My dad wouldn't bother. My dad would just go, all right, come on. My mum wouldn't, you know, she's a stickler, you know, she's feisty. So she would go to the drive through knock on the window. We'd be ducking in the car. My dad's called Tina because we'd be so embarrassed and she'd be banging on the window going, hey, excuse me, you've only given us half a portion of chips, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but that's, I think that's what makes her really good at a job, the fact that, you know, she's so fighty, she's not afraid to see what she thinks and she's very good at sales. And what did your dad do for a trade? So my dad worked for 32 years at AstraZeneca. Um, well, it was ICI. Yeah. And then it moved to AstraZeneca in Oldley Edge. So he was there for for 32 years and I don't quite know I think the company got bought out whatever but they got made redundant and then he sort of stayed retired but I keep him busy you know he's there no grandkids but he looks after me dog every day brilliant so I keep so him a, busy he's a professional dog sitter well yeah I mean he doesn't I'm not gonna lie he doesn't get paid he ends up coming round to mine doing jobs dad can just light the fire you know he's been around this morning with a brush brushing my car off you right. know so I think I give him more jobs and was it a nice child or did you have nice memories of it yeah, I mean, my mum and dad both worked really, really hard. And I'd say that. So um, my dad would work nights and my mum would work during the day. And my dad would work shifts. We would even work Christmas Day. So we got everything we ever asked for. Um, we got trips to Disneyland. We went through phases where we were comfortable. We went mm. through phases where, I remember at one point, my mum gave her wedding ring to when we went to get petrol once because she didn't have enough money to pay for it. So she gave them her wedding ring on the promise that she would come back and pay for the petrol. So they were financially, we were always very sort of up and down, but mm. it was a very loving childhood. And yeah, fabulous. Me and my brother are both doing all right. Was the music in the house? All the time. Yeah, oh, what kind of music? Stop. Growing up, my dad's massively into like Northern Soul, very much soul music as well. So he... You know, he drives a Lambretta. Oh, brilliant. Loves the Fred Perry. Get him know. in, get him in. <laughs> and it's a proper Lambretta, you know. It's, and a classic uh, one. Yeah, absolutely. Built from scratch uh, with all authentic parts. He had shipped in from Italy and all. So always that kind of vibe with my dad. My mum was more into sort of the pop music of the day, which I suppose rubbed off on me, which was things like Whitney Houston, George Benson. Those sort of things are what we grew up listening to. And then, yeah, my dad was just into sort of soul music and northern soul. Do you ever catch him uh, dancing in the kitchen? All the time. Yeah, my even dad now? Stop. Oh, it's in We go to a do. Yeah. My dad's the first one up and the last one off. He's dancing from the moment a record comes on. So when you left school, this probably leads nicely into one of your first jobs, which we want to talk about. Uh, when you left school, when you became a teenager, you were old enough to go out and about. Where did you go for your entertainment? Stockport Town Centre. 
Yeah. Which back then was an absolute, it was just, a, it was on fire, wasn't it, this place? Yeah, so there was a place called Grand Central, um, which I'm not quite sure if it's still there. I think they like just demolished cinema. it. Have they? Right. So. Yeah, so there was Grand Central and there was a club called Coco Savannas. And I was probably tinkering on the right age. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but because I'm so tall, I could always like, like it. But when I look back now, I think, oh... You know, when I look at the clothes I used to wear, I think, oh, no. Um, but, I'd, and I had an older cousin, and I thought she was so cool, you know, good-looking, had the boyfriend, you know. I was in, like, naff-naff, she was in Armani jeans, you know, that sort of vibe. So, and she, I used to go out with her a lot. So, it was Coco's, Savannah's, and then it changed, I think it was Vault's it changed to. That sort of area, the Grand Central area, I think there's like Grand Central Bar and then another bar. That was where we would go before we ventured into town. And when you went to Manchester, where, where would that be? Oh, Love Train. Yeah, For Love Train. Um, no, it was at um, Royale's. All right, okay. They yeah. moved to the Ritz later. I think, That's right, yeah. yeah. I, I did go to the Ritz after, but when I first started going, it was at um, Discotheque Royale's. And that's because that's where all the soul music was. Yeah, I mean, I never went into Manchester at that point. I never went into Manchester at the weekend. Um, I think at the weekend I'd go to uh, the Gay Village. I love the Gay Village. So there was a bar there called Mash and Air yeah. um, many moons ago and I'd, we'd go there and get a nice meal and then sort of have a drink. But on a Wednesday night, it would be the Love Train because that was where everybody went. It was, you know, it was the night at the yeah. time. Nice times. Like that. See, I wasn't really into the soul thing, but uh, I remember that era being good for Manchester for uh, those that were Brutus Gold, the that absolute legend there. <laughs> He's still going, he's still doing it. He's about 70 now anyway, he oh, still does his, uh, his yeah. disco night. You ended up, after you left school, you ended up doing some modelling, didn't you? How did that come about? Straight after I left school, I did my GCSEs. My mum and dad thought, right, education's not going to be her thing. So my dad got me a job working in the archives where he worked. I was getting my hair done in Manchester. And this woman came up to me and very strange, she said, have you ever thought of modelling? And I was like, no, and I'd done a bit of sort of acting. I'd been to stagecoach and I loved acting. And to be fair... Yeah, I was tall and thin, but I was never, I never felt I was attractive. I was never the one in school that all the boys fancied or anything like that. You know, I was like the, the tall, thin one. You mm. know, I was the goalpost, you know, <laughs> when we played football. You know, it's that sort of thing. So I never thought of myself as being attractive. So, so I was like, oh no. I was like, I've never thought, of, you know, no, not at all. And she said, right, okay, she said, well, have you got any pictures? And I didn't have any professional ones. But I was like, yeah, I've got these. She said, well, look, leave them with me. About a few months later, there was a competition in the News of the World for the Longest Legs in Britain um, because there was an, um, a woman from Brazil who had the longest... I know, you can see where this is going. I can imagine it. Like, when I think now, it's like so cringe. Yeah. Right? It's, it's the sort of thing you could only do in the 90s. So I entered this thing, went down to London, met with this photographer who was like the photographer, still around now, does all like this supermodels and all that so anyway he took my picture and then lo and behold I ended up in the centre pages of the news of the world so it got sort of a bit of attention I think there was three of us and I was the only I was the blonde one I'd found peroxide at that point (laughs) so I was like literally like white blonde so when did the uh, interest in Manchester's uh, past start then did that start before that were you you know as as a teenager were you interested in high school I didn't study history at all hated it I didn't even do it for GCSE, couldn't stand it. And then one day, me and my mum were sat at home and I was about 19, something like that. And we decided, I don't know why we did this, I think my granddad had passed away and we didn't, we wanted just to know more about him. He never spoke about his family or growing up. So it was purely, right, let's do our family tree. And that's really, for me, 
how it started. My love of Manchester history started with, I had to have that connection. And that's what I find with a lot of people. So a lot of people aren't interested in history. But if you say, look, I'll find the history of your family. You know, you might have no interest in World War One. But by the time we've finished, I'll tell you who your ancestor was in World War One and what battlefield he served on and what he wore. And there is a slim chance I can even maybe find a picture of him if he appeared in a newspaper for whatever reason. So so for me, I needed that personal connection and doing my family tree gave me that. It's funny because I went to, um, it was a pretty good quality school, actually the Cardinal Angler Grammar School in Middleton through the 70s, old boys. I didn't actually enjoy it. I didn't do very yeah. well at all, but... And history was one of the things that I just didn't connect with because it wasn't taught to me in a way that was tangible. Yeah. But I'd go home and play in the World War II air raid shelters yeah. and be excited about what they meant. This is where our families, our predecessors used to hide from the bombers. Yeah. So history that I could touch like that was always fascinating. Yeah. But the stuff they taught me in school to do with Egyptians and Henry VIII, it's like, whatever, you know yeah. what I mean? It's not for me. So yeah, but it's the same thing. And if you can connect directly with somebody's uh, backstory like that. And is it true when you're investigating your own family tree right at the beginning, is it true that one of your ancestors worked with Laurel and Hardy? This is, again, a weird one. So my granddad, I've, I've already said, he was a very proud man. He was a lift engineer. He used to do, like, the lifts in Lewis's and all that sort of stuff. But he never spoke about growing up, so we only had snippets of information. We had an idea from talking, like, it was like, you don't know them stories that get passed along in your family, you're not quite sure whether it's true or not, that... His dad was not a very nice man. And in order for them to survive, his mother, well, it would be his uncle, used to send money to them and would basically, you know, that money she would live on. So, so yes, we started doing some research. My mum takes me to an area of North Manchester, which is where they lived, which is now literally no longer there. There's like one cobble left. And she went, and this is where we lived. Whereabouts is that? Um, Pilling Street in Newton Heath. Me never in my wildest dreams thinking I'd end up in Hollywood. You know, it just doesn't happen, does it, to people from like us? So, and then the more research I did, the more I found out that, yes, um, my, mom, my mum's uncle, the man who used to send money home, was in a group called the Fred Carnos. It's something like 1901 is listed as an apprentice cabinet maker. Mm. By 1902, he's on a ship to New Orleans, touring America with the Fred Carnos, with Stan Laurel and also Charlie Chaplin. Wow. He used to send money back. He was in a detective series and I'd sort of, I'd, I knew that bit, that's a bit what I'd found. But with the internet now, you can do everything, can't you? So oh, yeah. I, I managed to find his obituary, which I think was in like their version of like the stage paper. Um, I managed to find his grave. I, I knew he'd remarried. But as happens in these things, somebody's contacted me since then and said, oh, did he ever go to Canada? I think he might be my you know, might be my great-grandfather. Uh, <laughs> awkward. Little pound note um, signs in their yeah, eyes. Yeah, awkward. <laughs> um, I'm just a regular person who, I mean, we've not even, I've not even told you about my dad's side yet, but I was just a regular person who, who didn't have any idea about my family tree till I started researching. Brings us nicely to that, because from that, doing your first family tree back then, to the modern day where you are sort of a go-to person now, aren't you? People want... Um, a, a talking head or you know somebody to do some uh, TV work on a family tree you've done uh, Who Do You Think You Are a few times yeah so I've done quite a few now so um, Who Do You Think You Are Air Hunters I've done that quite a lot I've done research for others it's quite nice and I never thought I'd be on the TV um, doing this mm. I remember a few years ago I sent an email out because my dream is to be behind the camera I'd love to write you know your Peaky Blinders, your Scuttlers, that them sort of, you know. Mm. So I sent an email out with my CV saying, look, I'm a researcher, I'm a historian, I'm a genealogist, da-da-da, this is me. 
anyway, I went to London and, and this big um, producer guy said, right, okay, come to London, meet me um, and we can have a chat. So I was like, right. And to be fair, I like to think I'm pretty cool. I'm probably not really. But I like to think from a historian's point of view, I'm pretty cool, right? So anyway, so I get down there and he, he said, I remember his words, it was something on the lines of, we think you're great, but we just don't think with your accent um, you're going to get on the TV. Wow. And I went, oh, right, okay. He said, because if you hear historians on the TV, he said, you know, they're all from the South and it's because you've got a very regional accent. Isn't that weird? Because to me... You don't you, think you'll get on the TV. You don't sound that regional to me. You sound really, yeah. really well-spoken, obviously, but I wouldn't have thought your accent had no. ever been seen as a, a regional accent. But. No, I am where I'm from and I'm not going to change my voice. Right. So the fact that somebody thought that I was actually going to, you know, worthy enough to be on the TV after having that knockback was was amazing. And you know, it's funny because since then, I now pay more attention to historians on the TV and to be fair, he's probably got a point. A lot of historians that you hear on the TV are from Oxford and from Cambridge and are mm. from the South and they all sort of talk like this. And, yeah, you know, that's really the way boring, you have to talk. Boring, aren't they? Yeah, well, I don't know. I am what I am and, you know, that's that's just me. I wear my heart on my sleeve. And, but after that, I never thought that I'd ever be in front of the camera, which was fine for me. Mm. You know, that was fine. I was quite happy to just stay in the background. So last year was particularly mad, and this year looks a bit looks at being all right as well. Well, we think you're cool, and uh, if you look at it, so a good, a good uh, comparison is look at what Brian Cox has done with his older accent yeah. and funny little baby face and scruffy hair. He's done all yeah. right, hasn't he? For the, <laughs> yeah. You know, for astronomy and whatever. Yeah, cosmic stuff. And I think as well, <laughs> I think you've got to be passionate, and I am really passionate, and I'm not just. I just don't want to appeal to, you know, you sort of middle class, you know, people that I want to appeal to everybody. I want to appeal to people that have never even thought about looking at history before, you know, because, yes, we're taught it in schools. But like what you said, it's so far removed, mm. but it's different when you can personalise it and you can put somebody there. And even if you can turn around to me and say, all right, Michaela, well, you know, that person wasn't born in the UK. So how can you give them that, that connection to history? Well, the records are there now. And even if we can't connect them personally we connect their house i can give you the history of their house yeah i give you the history of the area where they lived history of the football team i can make them feel that you know history is relevant to them and that's what i want to do that's what i'm trying to do (laughs) one of the things i've said to my wife a few times over the years is particularly in the house we're in at the moment is that every house should have its own book that stays in the house do you know what i mean like a Mm. scrapbook because some of the stories, our house was built in the 1870s by a mill owner. It's a semi. Yeah. Um, and it was built for his daughters that were going to live in one big house. And they put the foundation down. The girls fell out. It became two separate houses, which are now still connected at the cellar. So we just have one side. Our neighbour has the other side. But the, the story that we've just picked up from neighbours and through the people we bought off, etc. The house has got such a fasc- fascinating history. Like In the World War II, um, American pilots lived in the top of the house that were working nearby. Wow. So these are all things that you, through years said that you pick up, but if every house like that had a book with the story in it and pictures, you know, going back, it'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. We should and start that. We should start a campaign. Should we start? Yeah, yeah I'm right behind Hashtag that. house book. <laughs> yeah, the house book. <laughs> house book. Uh, let's talk about your books. You've written two books that, that I'm uh, aware of. One is A Grim Almanac of Manchester. Yeah. Uh, 365 Dark Tales from Manchester's Grim Path. So that's one grim story for every day of the year, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so uh, if you want, you can just like check out your birthday and yeah. find out what grimness happened in Manchester. Hopefully, we'll, we'll never have a year where we get one of these stories on every day of the year because that will be a shit year, but we'll talk about <laughs> some, of, some of those chapters in that book, right? Grim Almanac of Manchester. Yeah. Uh, my grimmest one, and I was aware of this before I was aware of your yeah. work, 
the famous one in uh, 1872. The floods. The floods, where yeah. the city was flooded, torrential rain, yeah. the River Medlock burst its banks, yeah. and it was pretty grim what happened next, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't great at all. So I've done a lot of work, actually, with Phillips Park Cemetery. In fact, my whole PhD thesis is based on the back of it because all my family are buried in there. <laughs> so, um, so, And I actually own a grave in there, believe it or not. So I feel very, I feel a real connection to them. And I actually did an exhibition on the cemetery and recreated the flood. So I'll tell you a bit about the flood. So what had happened was Manchester had experienced it was raining. But it wasn't like the usual rain. I mean, residents were saying it was literally like, you know, a water sprout had sprung up and it was horrendous. Now, the Catholic part of Phillips Park Cemetery, if you don't know where it is, it's right near Man City's ground. And the Catholic section is quite low lying and it runs alongside the River Medlock. And it had flooded there before, but not quite to this extent. So the rain went on all night. Then by the following day, what had happened was the river had burst its banks. The official inquiry was that a load of calico from the dye works further up had blocked the weir and the river had burst its banks and with the flow of the water, it also took, I think it was 70-odd coffins with it. And the bodies were actually separated from the coffins, weren't they? And they went as far as, so if you can imagine Man City's ground all the way across to Castlefield, that's how far they travelled. It's like three miles or something. Yeah. And they were picking them up in like local pubs. Because don't forget, your pub then was everything. It was your mortuary. You know, it was where you'd have inquests. It was where you'd have meetings. The pub was... So they were picking them up in local pubs and then reburied them. And that was bad. Mm. But I think the fallout after that, there was it was a lot deeper than just the flood because what had happened was the Catholic community in Manchester had said, we're not happy with this ground. And they'd already said we weren't happy with the ground. As a burial where ground. They were given, yeah, where the plot, that they, the section they were given. So it caused a massive fallout between the Catholic community. And the Catholic community then was mainly Irish people, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's the thing. The Irish during this century were blamed for a lot. They were blamed for disease. They were blamed for the fact that they felt that, you know, they were sort of taken from the system. Um, they were blamed as strike breakers. So they were sort of blamed for keeping wages low because... Um, when strikes happened, which they did in these big mill towns, they would get the Irish in. So they were blamed for a lot and it wasn't a great time to be an Irish Catholic person living in Manchester during that during this period. And that was only, it was only three or four years after they'd hung the Manchester Martyrs. That's it? it. So you've got this whole Fenian thing going on as well. So people were really sort of, you know, they always had one eye on the Catholic community. You know, what were they up to? What were they doing? So this flood, you know, it was more than a flood. And what happened after that was the Catholic community later opened up their own cemetery in Moston, their own Catholic cemetery. And to be fair, if you look at the numbers of Catholics being buried in Phillips Park, they were really keeping the cemetery going. Because 96% of graves that were sold during that period were in what we would call public graves. Some people call them pauper graves. It's where there's five or six coffins in one sort of plot. 96% of people buried in that cemetery, it tells you the sort of people they were, they were very working class, my family, Mm. um, were buried in that. And it was the Irish that were sort of keeping the revenue up and sort of keeping the cemetery afloat, really, financially. Literally. Yeah, literally. Yeah, in every sense of the word. <laughs> it's funny when you look at how amazing the city is today because we're only talking 150 years or so ago. Yeah. So it's a couple of generations, in it? But it, that there just sounds like a city still trying to find its feet back then in every way. You know, it's falling apart, wasn't it? And, yeah, and it's a very hard one in Manchester because if you're from Birmingham, you might disagree with me, but we were the city. You know, Liverpool... In the 18th century being a port, yeah, 
beautiful building, spent a lot of money on infrastructure, spent a lot of money on, you know, you'd walk around Liverpool and they wanted you to look at their buildings and go, wow, yeah. you know, we have arrived in Britain, you know, we've come over on the boat, we've arrived, merchants, you know, buying fabric and, and getting raw cotton sent across, you know, it was very much, it was a very wealthy place. Well, Manchester was that and then some in the century after. So in the 19th century, we were right at the forefront of what I would call progress. Yeah. You know, we had the biggest, the best buildings. We had the best architects coming to design them. And it really was these municipal corporations really did want the people, the workers, yeah. Mm. They like to say they want the workers to feel better and want to motivate themselves, but also it was partly for their benefit because they were scared that the workers were making them ill. Whatever it was, Manchester, we, we were at the cutting edge and, and we really were. We did. I think we get known as just relying on cotton, but mm. it was a... It was a a real mixture but outside of London we were I'd argue the city we still are aren't we we are the city aren't we we are London, <laughs> London's second to us uh, let's talk about the uh, Scotland that you mentioned before something else that's uh, fascinated me for many years the, uh, the history of the Manchester gangs that were yeah. towards the end of well the late 1800s Victorian times the Scotlers tell us what you know about them again it's it's a funny one isn't it you know we talk about history repeating itself mm. And I see a lot on the news at the minute with youths, knife crime and what should we do about this? And it gets me so frustrated because I think, just look back to Victoria Manchester and learn a lesson from us. We were overrun with gangs, especially in areas like Ancoats and places of Salford. And all these gangs were named after the road upon which they lived. So you've got like the Prussia Street gang. Bengal Street, the Bengal Tigers, you know, they were all named after where they lived. So, and they were youths. Most of them, it wasn't very well organised. They'd meet up, they'd fight over territory. They might fight over girls, you know, they'd have belts. They'd have bats with nails in, bottles, anything they could find and they'd have a fight. Mm. When I did my research, that that's sort of what I knew about it. When I did my research, I was looking into um, a couple of different cases I found that they were actually far more well-established, more like a modern-day gang than just a group of teenagers. Um, so the king of Scotland, he would be like, you know, sort of the king of the gypsies. He would be sort of the head person and he would run the gang. And there's a few kings of Scotland that actually branched out into running doors. So think about modern-time gangsters that run doors and it was very much the same then, so they would run the best doors in Manchester mm. of music halls and of tea rooms and, and dances and they they had that sort of power. It's funny as what's striking as well about it when I first started reading about these gangs they had uniforms as well or they had little ways of recognising they were in a gang and it might be a particular way you'd have a fringe on your hair yeah. or you'd have a belt worn a certain way or a scarf again just like modern day gangs do in, in some parts of the world you know it's like they own particular uniform they had it back then didn't they in the Victorian they times they did yeah and we have the Scotlers and then we have another group after that called the Ikes and the Ikes were far more concerned about their appearance so I know if, if anybody listening watches sort of the Peaky Blinders you'll notice they have the sort of shaved heads at the side the hair on top the flat cap and the Ikes were pretty similar they had sort of bell bottom pants they had a shaved head with a really strange fringe um, so they were really sort of distinguishable. But I think what happened in Manchester, it was a combination of things, but we started to see a lot of national inquiries into what's going on in Manchester during this period of the Scuttlers and the Ikes. And then they start investing things in youth clubs. So we start seeing, you know, what we think today of, of boxing clubs like the Moston 
uh, Collier Erston Moston Boxing Club, I think it's called, mm. they were all founded sort of off the back of money trying to get these youths into, you know, off the streets. And I often think now, I think, God, it, you know, if it worked then, could it work now? Do you ever find yourself, like me, I do this a lot, walking around the city and thinking to yourself, right, this is the actual spot where Peterloo happened or this is the actual building where man first split the atom. Can you believe I'm saying that in this, mm. in this city? And this is where George Besh used to come to work every day. Or this is where the first people in the world that could get buy a ticket to get on a train and go to another town. That happened near the first railway station in the world. Do you find yourself thinking that and getting the same level of excitement every time? Every time. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. See, that's te- so, really tangible, isn't it, as I said? Yeah, so I'll walk, you know, I'll walk down... Peter Street, and we've already spoke about Discotheque Royale, the Theatre Royal. I've got so many programmes from there, you know, I've got images of what it was like. And that, that you know, you get that feeling of, oh, I know what happened there. And especially, yeah. you know, my my genre in terms of Manchester is, I, t- I do, I talk a lot about the grim things that happen, the crime and all that, because that's what I'm interested in. At the moment, I'm working on a major exhibition, looking at the high street, so I'm charting the history with a colleague of mine at MMU. We're charting the history of Manchester's High Street from sort of 1840 going right up to the end of the 1990s. So I'm walking now on Market Street going, oh, yeah, I know what was there and um, I know what they sold and I know how much um, a fur coat was in that in that shop. Yeah, so it changes all the time. Yeah. What I will say to people, many, um, when I say many years ago, probably about seven or eight years ago, I suffered really bad with anxiety. And... Somebody gave me words of advice and they said, count the chimneys. And I was like, mm, it's a bit weird, <laughs> but I'll just do it anyway. I'll try anything. I was like, I'm smelling salts and all sorts. So I thought, right, okay, I'll start looking up and counting chimneys. And it's only when you look up at eye level, we all see the, the high street and all these shops we've got. Look up mm. and that'll give you some indication of what it was before. Yeah, the magnificence And of if it you all. don't know... And you're curious, get yourself to the library. Yeah. Go and have a look. See see what these places were. But at eye level, we're limited, but but the buildings are still there in Manchester. We're very lucky. Some beautiful architecture out there. Let's talk about another something I'm a bit fascinated by because we're almost on the side of it, just a stone's throw away from here, the New Bailey Prison. Yeah. Which was recently, well, it's been a car park for decades, hasn't it? And before they started work on the current couple of uh, buildings, skyscrapers, the last two, I think, on the Spinningfield site, but they excavated the original foundations of the mm. prison. Were you involved in that excavation or did you visit it? No, but I wish I was because there were so many cases that I've looked at over the years of people that were hung there. Mm. Um, and obviously they were all buried in unmarked graves so that they wouldn't have been anything to them. Um, so just from purely and a nosy, because listen, don't be fooled. I may sit here now, but I'm the nosiest person. This is how I got into history. Like I'm walking past your house and secretly looking, you know, looking through your nets thinking, oh, what's going on there? You know, I would be that woman over the fence looking. I'm really nosy. So just from a, a nosy historian's point of view and for the fact that I've researched so many of the people that, that were hung there and that did terrible crimes, I wish I had have been involved. I took photographs because the, um, the multi-storey car park that I use every day yeah. looks down on the site that they recently uncovered. I'll show you the picture right. after, but it's fascinating when you see it. I've seen the maps on the internet. You can see yeah. the, the actual drawings of the plans for the prison. Yeah. And I was actually looking down on the actual bricks of what would have been the, the bottom of the cell walls. Yeah. And, and f- incredible thing to, to witness. It was quite funny, actually, because in Manchester, obviously, we've got the New Bailey Prison and then we get strange ways. But even before that, we just have like random, um, <laughs> random places where people were, I don't, I don't want to say incarcerated because that's the wrong word, but 
if if we think of now where like Primark is, where the old infirmary used to be. Yeah. I mean, they had a ducking stool there for prostitutes. Really? In yeah. Piccadilly Gardens? So, so where the lake was, if you were caught out to be a prostitute, they would literally put you on the ducking stool and duck you under the water. Until you died? Or well, just, just until, until they washed you. Right, okay. Washed your sins away. Flipping, eh? I've <laughs> been there for a while, mate. It was rough times, that, wasn't it? Eh? It was, wasn't rough. it? It they was. brutal, weren't they? <laughs> it is like horrible histories is one of the greatest things that's ever been yeah. made and that's exactly where you're coming from, isn't it, in the way that yeah. you're looking at these things. What are your personal favourite chapters to talk about then or have you covered them? Oh. Is there any that we've not mentioned? Or? You know what? I have a favourite story and I shouldn't have really because it's a bit tragic, but um, there was a woman in Ancoats who I was doing some research on and she was called Mrs McCann, right? And what happened was one day she turned up in the middle of Ancoats and there was a little lad playing in the street. And she, in her arms she had a baby and a cake. And she said to this little lad, she said, look, do me a favour. She said, well, I'm paraphrasing slightly. I don't quite know what she said. But she gave the little lad the cake and she said, look, there's some money. Um, I think it was something like, it was quite a bit, something like two and six. So there's some money. Can you take this cake? to a flower seller's house. He's called Mr Drummond. I baked him this cake. I've not got time. I've got to get off. So can you go and deliver this 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 cake to Mr Drummond? And the little lad went, yeah, you know, put his money in his pocket, more than what his mum had earned in like a week. Uh, went to the, the Drummond's house, knocked on the door and said, Hi, I've got this cake. Anyway, the flower seller's wife opened the door and said, look, it's not for us. We we don't know where you've got the cake from. Take it home. So anyway, Goes home, his mum finishes work in the factory, uh, comes home, says, Mum, I've got a cake and I've got this money. Automatically fearing the worst, she thinks, right, he's stolen it. Goes back to the flower seller, she confirms the story. So the mother, being the kind-hearted woman she is, starts handing it out to all the kids in the street, not realising that it's laced with arsenic. Oh, heck. So, um, luckily, most of the people that digested it were sick straight away. So they digested it, were sick and survived and there was one fatality so whoever this woman was but the description was um in the newspaper was by a six-year-old boy mm. so she described her having a gray shawl on um a pinny and big sticky out front teeth sounds like my mother-in-law <laughs> whoever she, she was she was vexed wasn't she about she somewhere? was she was livid <laughs> she, was proper, she was pissed off about she somewhere. was so livid <laughs> yeah <laughs> Do you find that the more you delve into these stories and the, the more you look into Manchester's past, does it make you more in love with the city of today? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so proud of it, yeah. What do you think about the spirit of the city? Is there a spirit? Is it identifiable in any way? Is it different than other places? It's Manchester. You know, it's... Um, we are... I hate to say this because it's dead cheesy, but we do we do things differently. There's, I've travelled quite a bit and I work all over the country and um, there's no... Maybe it's just home for me. It's just like a comfy pair of slippers. It's just home. I never feel, you know, I never feel threatened. I never feel that I'm looking over my shoulder. If I ask someone for directions, the people, they'll talk to you. Yeah. They want to talk to you. I've always said that. If you ask somebody for directions, you can't get rid of them, can you? <laughs> no, no, be your best mate. I'm doing the family tree before. <laughs> yeah. Do you reckon that, or do you hope that there are people as passionate as yourself about the history of the city that these days, like now, going around documenting and recording some of what's happening for future uh, genealogists and uh, historians. Do you reckon that? Do you hope that? I hope so. I mean, we've got a great set of records. What we will lose are things like that, 
um, that personal touch between people. Um, so we don't have letters anymore. We don't keep those. Most of your pictures are on a hard drive. So unless you're printing them out, we might not get to see those. There'll still be pictures. I imagine there'll still be albums. But that personal touch, I think that's what we'll lose. Tell us about the guy. You mentioned this earlier uh, before we put the tape recorder on. Yeah. The guy that you were talking about and he said, what do you do? And you said, I do family trees, etc." Oh. And tell us what happened next. I've decided. So I had a right great time over Christmas and put on not loads of weight, but just enough that I want to get it off. My jeans are tight. So I thought I'd join the gym. So I said, I've joined my local gym. Anyway, the gym instructor met me at the uh, the weekend, showed me around, and he couldn't get my name right. So my name's Michaela, but it's not with an E. Mm. And I, I can't tell whether my mum was being quirky or just can't spell. I probably can't spell, but she'll argue she's being quirky. <laughs> right, so a lot of people don't know how to pronounce my name, but anyway... Um, there's not pronouncing my name and then there's for the first half of the session calling me, I think it was Haley, and then the second half of the session he called me Anastasia after me re- after me reminding him in the middle that my name's Michaela, by the way. Anyway, we're getting towards the end of the session and um, he showed me how to use all the equipment and he said, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, I said, um, I'm a historian. I said, but I also research family trees. And before that, we'd had a great chat about Manchester Metropolitan University and how we knew town and how we'd worked in town. So, so you know, it was a, the conversation was flowing. And um, and I said to him, yeah, I said, uh, I'm a historian and I research family trees. And he said to me, oh, great. And I thought, right, he's going to ask me, you know, can you tell me where Uncle Bob lived in, in you know, wherever Middleton? <laughs> so anyway, so I said, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, I said why, you know, do you, do you do family trees? He said, yeah, he said, my father-in-law... He's really into it. So I'm thinking, right, okay. He went, um, he chopped a massive tree down at the weekend, but he's having problems with another one because it's got a tree <laughs> preservation order on it. <laughs> I was like thinking, oh my God. And it was that embarrassing. And he spoke about it for that long, Clint, that it got, it was that awkward that I couldn't then say, I know nothing about trees. And just to make him feel better, I then started saying things like, yeah, well, my mum and dad had a big tree as well in their garden that they had to get chopped down. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's my favourite story of it. Any stories that have been told on these, this podcast so far, it's brilliant. Right, a couple more things before you go, Michaela. If I was to say to you, who are your favourite humans of Manchester ever, past or present, who would they be? Um, St Francis of Ancoats, who wasn't a saint at all. He was just a wealthy merchant that lived in a massive house in Bowdoin, sold it all and moved to Star Hall right in the middle of Ancoats and basically just helped the people of Ancoats that were really struggling at the time. So I would say... Him for me is um, is sort of a special character that that comes about quite a bit, um, and then a woman that nobody's ever heard of. If I can have two, she's called Ellen Rattelak. No one's ever heard of her. I paid a tenner for her stuff at auction. She was born in eighteen fifty five. She lived to one hundred and three. School teacher, never married. And um, the letters that I've got from auction of when she reached one hundred, she seemed to be the most caring, real giving teacher. She taught some of the, the movers and shakers in Manchester their children, like C.P. Scott, who was the editor of The Garden, all these. I've got letters from him. And in a time where school, the profession was quite hard, there were canes, very strict, she seemed to be just a really lovely woman. And quite a strong woman, you know. She never conformed, she never married. She lived with a mate and a, a, a friend's brother. So, But just a really interesting woman. So it's those people, the people that don't make the papers, that I find interesting. Before you go, describe Manchester in three words, Michaela. Home, 
beautiful and the best. Perfect. You are the coolest historian that I've ever <laughs> met. And uh, keep being nosy. Next time I see you, I'm going to call you Nosy Michaela. That should be your new nickname, yeah? That's cool. Michaela Hume, thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. That was Michaela Hume. Make sure you join us next week where I'll be speaking to one of the most influential musicians that Britain has ever produced. He was also a key member in one of the world's most important bands, Mr Johnny Marr. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us, feel free to leave us a comment. We love getting your feedback and please share the podcast if you're enjoying it. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.